Our text, the New Testament lesson from 1 Corinthians 11, comes in the middle of an extended piece of correction from Paul on the abuse of the supper in the Corinthian church. At their fellowship meals, the rich were not waiting for the poor. Some ate and drank to excess. Others had nothing. And the Apostle Paul is appalled by this. Then, in verses 23 through 26, again, you can see this in 1 Corinthians 11. That's the very first part of our text. Paul moves from the specific Corinthian abuse. He moves from that specific case to the general case of administering the supper. We know this, we know this, because verses 23 through 26 are simply Paul's restatement of Jesus' words of institution. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And then, of course, the same thing for the cup. So Paul just recites the gospel narratives of the instituting of the supper. And when you go back to the words of institution, you are now addressing not just the Corinthian situation, but every celebration of the Lord's Supper everywhere. Right? Those words govern every celebration of Holy Communion. They are the governing words. Right? Any commentator you pick up on 1 Corinthians 11 will notice this. Calvin, for example, says this. He says, Paul has passed from the particular case to the general statement. There was one fault which prevailed among the Corinthians, Calvin says. He takes occasion from this to speak of every kind of faulty administration of the Lord's Supper. So it's important, right? It's important when we look at what happens in our text, we are asking what it means for us, for all, every time anyone, anywhere celebrates the Supper. It might seem like a sort of obvious point, right? This is what teachers do. It's what apostles do. It's what pastors do. There's this particular case. Let me generalize from that particular case, and then I'll maybe come back to your particular case at the end. That's just what Paul's doing in chapter 11 here. So we can't read 1 Corinthians 11 and say, well, that only applies to the Corinthian abuses at the supper. That doesn't apply to us. We should know this already in this series, right? Last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 10 and saw that Paul said all of Israel's sins in the wilderness are incompatible with the table of the Lord. Two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul said all evil and all malice is incompatible with celebrating the feast. We have to celebrate the feast with sincerity and in truth. So he's doing nothing particularly new here. He's done it a couple times already in this very book. So with that, I'm going to make three points from verses 27 through 32. So it's just that six-verse section here. Examine, discern, and judge. Words for judgment are used five times in this little passage. So first, examine. 
Paul cites the words of institution, right, from the night Jesus was betrayed. And the next thing he says is this. Whoever, therefore. So, what he's about to say follows directly from the words of institution. Jesus said, eat, this is my body, and drink, this is my blood. Therefore, Paul says, this follows. Again, again, the therefore does not depend on the Corinthian abuses. It depends on and it follows from the words of institution which govern every celebration of the supper. Because of what Jesus did on the night he was betrayed, this is what follows. So far, I hope, so good. So we ask, therefore, what follows? What follows? This follows. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves here, notice just the first word. Every word is important here, but notice the first word. Whoever. So what is being said by the apostle applies to all who approach the table. He says it three different ways in three verses. Whoever in verse 27 is let a man or let a person in verse 28. That's a designation which is generic. Let a person and excludes no one. And in verse 29, we have for anyone who eats and drinks. So, right, whatever warnings that are about to be administered apply to any and all who eat and drink at that table, none are excluded. Paul has said it three times. So, what is anyone or whoever or a person told here? Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty or liable for the body and blood of the Lord. Well, that will sure put a damper on a purely celebratory conception of the Eucharist. Like this, beloved, is terrifying stuff. It may be the most terrifying sentence in the New Testament. And it's right in the middle of that. Like this is a dreadful warning passage. A divine deterrent against sacrilege, against profaning the holy, against incurring the guilt of the crucifixion itself. Notice, it's very important to get this here. The guilt is not incurred against the church. The unworthy partaker is guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That presence it is, is what is being defiled. There are a lot of concerns. People have a lot of opinions about the supper, which I've mentioned this before, right? What should we do? How should we do it? And these are legitimate concerns. But there's a chief overriding concern that Paul has here that is often missing from us, right? Which is guarding the integrity and the dignity of the glorious humanity of Christ, which is present here, that it may not be defiled. Right? We're very good at what do we get out of the supper? Who comes? Who doesn't come? When do they come? What kind of bread? What kind of wine? What are this? What about that? But God is guarding 
the majesty of his son's humanity at the table. God will not, Calvin says, allow this mystery to be desecrated without punishing it severely. Yet, and here is the paradoxical glory that I want you to grasp this morning. Yet, not in spite of, but because of this, the meal is given for your comfort and your joy. You drop this first part out, though, and your comfort and joy will just be some sort of silly optimism or celebratory spirit. The meal is given for our comfort and our joy, but so holy and sacred, so unbreakable is the relationship between these signs and Christ's own body and blood. So vulnerable, if you will, is Jesus there that God himself as judge protects the integrity of the table. Because Christ's flesh and blood are really present in the sacrifice. Because they are not just empty symbols. You can, we can, in a unique way. By the way, in a way that you can't in baptism. You can here in a unique way publicly profane the body and blood of your Savior. How? By eating or drinking in what Paul calls an unworthy manner. It's a general term. It's meant to be general. Again, it can't be narrowed down to the Corinthian abuses. Paul is a master of language and precision. And he uses a broad term because he's trying to cast a broad net to catch a broad array of behavior, just like he did in chapter 10, just like he did in chapter 5. There are varying degrees of being unworthy. The Corinthian way is one way of being unworthy. But irreverence or nonchalance in the presence of the body and blood of Christ, that's also wicked. Anything which sees this just as a common meal is cavalier. It's presumptuous. We should behave here with the same Conduct that we would behave at the foot of the cross because that's where you are when you're there. Right? Living as a baptized person in rebellion, in a state of unrepentant sin, is partaking in an unworthy manner. Not being reconciled to your brothers and sisters in Christ right, is partaking in an unworthy manner. To do these things is to spit upon the sincerity and truth which Paul said are required to celebrate the feast. Right? Nevertheless, and we'll see this more later, this is medicine. But it is medicine for broken, humble people who are longing to be healed and liberated from their corruption. This is not magic. It works by faith. And faith, our confessions rightly say, is ever and always joined with repentance. There's no such thing as faith apart from repentance. And repentance is ever and always joined with self-examination. It's a, it's a cord of three strands, which isn't easily broken. Faith, repentance, and self-examination. This is why if we ask, okay, what must one do to not incur the guilt? 
The answer begins to unfold in verse 28. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. First here, notice, notice the then and the so. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat and drink. That is, eat and drink as one who's undergone self-examination. So Paul could not be clearer. There are to be no people at the supper, eating and drinking, who have not first undergone searching self-examination. Now, this is not strange. It shouldn't be strange to us. Because we've already seen that the supper is a kind of like condensed version, kind of a visual, you know, distilled version of the Christian life. And self-examination, beloved, is essential to Christian conscience, to Christian well-being. Let me just give you a couple texts on this. Paul says in Galatians 6 that each one is to test his own work. He says something a little more elaborate in 2 Corinthians. He says this, examine yourself. Right? This is not even in the context of the supper. This is just what the Christian life consists in. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. He writes this to baptized members of the Corinthian church. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself, he says. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? And then he says something shocking. Unless, indeed, you fail the test. Like, not only does Paul think we should examine ourselves, he thinks you might occasionally need to fail yourself. Like, you shouldn't be an easy grader on yourself. Like, I'm not just going through the motion with this test. I'm saying examine yourself, and you might fail the test. I didn't say it. He said it. So self-examination, done rigorously, done searchingly, done with skill, done in light of the holy commandments of God, and please hear me, done under the mercy and grace of the gospel. Not as something independent from the gospel, but done under the mercy and in the light of the gospel. Done at the foot of the cross, before the body and blood of the Lord. Christian self-examination is inseparable from Christian growth and nurture. And we have so little growth because we have so little ability to examine ourselves. Right? We are all about other people's sins, not ours. This is why it's eminently fitting at the table to examine ourselves. Because the table's designed for our cleansing, for our renewal, for our judgment onto joyful new obedience. Right? And this, Paul says, cannot be farmed out. No one can do this for another. You can't examine another's conscience. Let a person examine himself and so eat and drink. So, baptism, for example, is done to you. 
And here at the table, you publicly affirm your baptismal covenant with God. Baptism places an oath on you if you're a child, let's say, being baptized. Baptism places an oath on your life prospectively, meaning looking toward the future. It's a seal or a witness to embrace the covenant in the future. Here, you say, I have indeed embraced the covenant and its obligations, and I now publicly assume the baptismal oath as my own. That's why there are two sacraments. So, it's not perfect faith or flawless repentance that are called for, but nevertheless, faith and repentance are required at the supper. And we have to be very careful here for two reasons, right? One is we're treading on exquisitely holy ground here. And two is that exquisitely holy ground is nevertheless a joyful invitation to you. And if we get either side of this wrong, we will not reflect the fidelity and truth of Holy Scripture. So I want to add this, and I want it to be heard clearly. This self-examination, rigorous, robust, thorough, is not a work or some kind of merit that we obtain. We examine ourselves here as children already embraced in the covenant. We're not examining ourselves as unbelievers. It is true one could fail the test, but the assumption is we are children embraced in the covenant. And the very body and blood which we must not profane is the sacrifice through which we are enabled to confess our faith, to examine ourselves, and repent of our sins. That sacrifice enables this self-examination. Self-examination, then, is a grace. It is a gift of God's mercy, and it cannot be bypassed. That's examine. The second point in the text is, is discern. And here, like, we can zero in a bit more on what is meant by self-examination. We can tease it out a little. What does it consist of? Well, it consists, Paul tells us, it consists of this. It consists in discerning the body. Discerning here means to judge or evaluate the body. So this is critical, right? Because anyone, Paul says, anyone who doesn't engage in this discerning eats and drinks judgment on themselves. And body here, when Paul speaks of discerning the body, he means that body right there on the table. It's just shorthand for body and blood. Let me explain why. The whole passage, if you back up and read it, is about body and blood, bread and cup, eating and drinking. That's what Paul's talking about the whole way through. And when we get to verse 29, it reads like this. You'll see this pattern. Eat, drink, discern the body, eat, drink. So body there is just shorthand for eating and drinking. It's shorthand for the body and blood of Christ. Just the way Jesus calls himself the bread of life in John 6, he's not excluding the wine part. Remember, remember, The guilt involved in verse 27 concerns the body and blood of our Lord. So first and foremost, it's that body that we are to discern. It's that body. 
And we can't. We cannot discern, properly judge, evaluate the church, this body, without discerning or evaluating that body and blood. If you want to see a secondary reference to the church here, I'm fine with that. Right? But it is that broken body which creates this body. We don't want to tear these two things apart, right? The church is Jesus' mystical body, and he is never separated from her. But if we cannot judge and remember and give thanks for that sacrifice, if we can't discern it properly, we certainly cannot discern what the church is. The church as body is incomprehensible from discerning that body. So we discern what is on display here, the death for our sake of Jesus Christ, his broken body, his shed blood for our sin. And in discerning that, and only by discerning that, we also discern this as the body of that Christ. And discerning this as the body, right? This does not mean we simply say, oh yeah, that's the church. It means that in the light of the cross, in light of the body and blood there, we are called to a radical kind of love to our brothers and sisters in the body here. In discerning what Christ has done for us there, we discern our ethical obligations and our duties to our brethren here. Right? And anyone, Paul says, anyone who eats and drinks without this discernment eats and drinks judgment on himself because they're eating and drinking without either understanding the atonement or without understanding the, the ethical, moral implications of the atonement to others. And so serious, you might think, wow, this is a heavy sermon. It gets heavier. So serious is the flaming sword of God over this table that at Corinth, Paul says, because you've behaved like this at the table, many are weak and ill, and some have died. They've died because of God's judgment on their failure to discern Christ's death and the duties it calls them to toward their brothers and sisters. There's another very apparent difference between the sacraments here. Baptism is an oath, a covenantal sign or seal on you. And covenants have sanctions. Baptism threatens sanctions later if the one baptized does not grow up and embrace the covenant. At the supper, the sanctions are administered now, in real time. Many Corinthians are already sick and dead. Which is why discernment is required now, not later, now in anyone who partakes. And that brings me to the third point here, judgment. Verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So these judgments are severe. They may entail physical death, Paul says, but they're not eternal judgments. Right? Notice he says this in verse 32. He says, We undergo the discipline of God here so that we might not be condemned. So here's the point I want you to see. It's good news. It may not be good news in the package we're used to hearing it in, but this is the really good news part. The supper is a kind of mini final judgment. 
It brings forward the end, the eschaton, so that in God's mercy you can judge yourself here before you have to stand before the judge. And if we don't do that, Paul says, God will stand as our chastening father to discipline us so that we might escape the coming judgment. So yes, the passage rightly induces in the church a kind of trembling. But what a blessing it is. What an act of sheer mercy it is for the Lord to give you the opportunity to judge yourself before the final judgment. Right? It's like giving you the test in advance. One of my kids recently reminded me that when they were little, they would bring home like their spelling test. And they would be so proud that they got like a 90 on it. And they reminded me that I would say, you know what a spelling test is, right? It's a test where they give you the answers in advance. They say, here's a word. I'd like you to write this word down tomorrow on a piece of paper. So the only acceptable grade on a test where they give you the answer in advance is 100. It's fantastic parenting, I know. Uh, They were very encouraged by it. (laughs) That's why I was reminded of it recently. But I mean, the beauty of the table is, is God saying, look, I'm taking the final judgment. And I'm bringing you to it today. And you know what? You know who, who can stand as the judge? You. You can examine yourself so that that day will be an easier day for you, a more glorious day. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says on that day, people are going to have their entire life's work burned up and they themselves will be saved as sins through a fire. You don't want to be one of those people. So it's an extraordinary gift. Right? It's an extraordinary gift. So it's a bracing text. It's meant to put the fear of God in us. But it is a feast. It's a sober feast. It's full of gladness. And we are to remember here that holy joy and holy self-examination are not at all incompatible. They sweetly comply with one another. The deeper the self-examination, the deeper the dread, the deeper the trembling, the more thorough one judges oneself, the more exalted and glorious and luminous is the joy. Right? The Christian life is about descent all the way down and ascent all the way up. You don't want to play it in here. Jesus himself Think of this, was both a man acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows. What a name. A man of the deepest kind of interior life. And get this, he is also the man anointed with the oil of joy above all of his companions. He is the most sorrowful, the most grief-stricken, and the most joyful human being who's ever lived. And an exclusively celebratory Eucharist is a mockery of his life. Right? The Eucharist conforms to that pattern. And I think, and while no one can do it perfectly and no church does it perfectly, this is what we are aiming at in our practice here of having one element distributed in silence for meditation, right? Or a time of sober reflection, and having the other element accompanied by a hymn of triumph at the Lamb's High Feast. This helps to bring out the combination of sober self-examination and holy joy nicely, I think. Finally, 
We heard in the gospel lesson how Jesus calls us to love one another. And here's the key words, right? As he has loved us. And it's with that command that he established the supper. So what is he saying? He's saying that that table, right, that brokenness, that weakness, that nonviolence, non-threatening mode of existence, that death, that outpoured life, that is what we are called to toward one another. We discern that body so that we can discern this body. Discerning what was done there, we can discern what is to be done here. And thus the supper reminds us with great sobriety, right, with great realism, it reminds us we are going to have to enter into that passion if we are to love one another. To love this body. So when you look at the table, examine yourself. Discern the body. Judge yourself. Think this. This is how Jesus loved me. This then is what he means when he says love one another as I have loved you. Thanks be to God for the Holy Supper. It is your judgment on the salvation. Amen.